As you take your seats, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Paul's letter to 1 Timothy. As you do, I want to, I want to thank uh, Brian and Patrick for, for filling the pulpit the last two weeks while I have been away with family on vacation. It's been great to, to get away, to unwind. At the same time, we are very excited to be back. It's always good to, to be able to come back to the church family that you love and We've missed worshiping with you, and it is good to be home. And today, I'm excited about starting a, a new series out of First Timothy um, entitled Blueprints. While on vacation, uh, even, like, even before we left, uh, I watched a documentary that was showing how they build the, the mega cruise ships. I know it sounds riveting, uh, but I, I did find it quite riveting and, and interesting. Uh, Leslie, not so much. She fell asleep. But the, the documentary was talking about all the, the big steps and the little steps that go into getting a ship ready to sail before it ever hits the water. And before anything is welded together or constructed or painted or decorated or any, anywhere it gets close to the water, what takes place is a blueprint. A blueprint is formed, a design is created, a detailed design that is showing you know, how the ship is to be constructed, how it is to be uh, operated, and all those type of things. And if you deviate from the blueprint, even by a fraction of an inch in some cases, then it's going to leave a lot of problems uh, to be dealt with. The things aren't going to match up right, aren't going to be lined up right. And I started thinking about that, and really the reality is the same thing applies to the church. God has given the, the church blueprints to show us you know, what we are to believe, and subsequently what we are to teach must align with those beliefs. And then along with that, it's telling us how we're to conduct ourselves as we gather as the church, what, what that means, what that looks like. And then not only what it looks like to gather as the church, how we're to live our lives when we scatter out into the world. The Bible's telling us all of these things. They're, it's a God-given design for how the church is to function. All of that being found in the Bible. Someone once asked me, they said, they heard me kind of talking about how all the answers were found in the Bible, and they really they came up and they said, Jeremy, do you really believe that all the answers are found in the Bible? And I said, well, when it comes to the leadership of the local church, the answer is yes. All the answers are, are found in the Bible. And 1 Timothy serves to, as a key component, not the entire component, but a key component of what this blueprint looks like. So, so if you would, open your Bibles with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to begin in verse 1 this morning. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion. Desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, 
for those who strike their, their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. In accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, which I have been entrusted. So what we have here in these 11 verses is the Apostle Paul writing a, a letter to a much younger Timothy. It's, it's a letter being written to a specific person. In this case, it is his disciple, Timothy. And Paul has decided to, to leave Timothy in the city of Ephesus for a particular purpose. And he tells us that purpose in verse 3. So if you're following along, you can see it there as he says, so that, basically the purpose of, he may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Paul had just spent three years or so in, in Ephesus proclaiming the gospel, making disciples, teaching the believers, striving to, to strengthen this young church to, to help make it strong. And now he's leaving Timothy behind to continue that effort, to continue the work that had been started. See, Ephesus was a major city in the Asian Minor. It was a city that is now modern-day Turkey is where you would find it. It was large in population, diverse in culture, flourishing economically, and it was religiously complex. Now, that is not much different than a lot of our metropolitan cities today. And similar to our our cities today, the religious complexity brought about a, a lot of confusion. It brought out a lot of different beliefs. And in that, it brought about a lot of false teaching. And the false teaching that Paul is concerned with here is not so much what is taking place outside of the church, but what is taking place inside. He knows the religious complexity and the varying beliefs of the culture, that's going to be there, that's going to exist. But what he's focused on is what they can control with inside the church. And that's why in what is considered kind of his final instructions to this church, we can see in Acts chapter 20, he tells the elders there to beware of fierce wolves. Fierce wolves who would enter into the church there and wreak havoc within the church by the means of false teaching. He's given a warning. Beware of this. This is what's going to come. This is what can happen. And guess what? Paul was right. Paul was right regarding the false teaching. And that's exactly what happens. And that's why he's writing this, this letter to 1 Timothy to continue to remind him to stay firm to the task that is at hand. Now, the question that comes in with this, we started thinking about this, is like, what does it mean for us? It's a natural question with any text. It's like we want to have application. We want to know how this applies. How does this apply to us? And the answer is simple. But if Paul wrote this letter so that the church in Ephesus would, would know what to believe, subsequently know what to teach, and then how to conduct themselves as they gathered as the church and then as they scattered into the world, well, the same application applies to us. It's a blueprint. And it's all stemming from the importance of sound doctrine. So what we're going to do today is we're going to look at four points. We're going to kind of bookend it with point one and point four being the, 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 the largest and the strongest of the points, kind of pulling it together with two important points there in the middle. But we're going to see point number one, a healthy church understands the importance of sound doctrine. As Paul writes again in verse 3, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. 
And the instruction there to charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine implies that there must have been a doctrine that they were supposed to be teaching. He's saying, don't teach this, which means that there is something that they should be teaching. There's a right teaching and there is a wrong teaching. There's a wrong, the right system of belief and there is a wrong system of belief. That, that's what he's saying here. Paul's emphasizing the point that what we believe and what we teach really does matter. Why? Well, why does doctrine matter? Well, why, why does this matter so much? Be, because what we believe determines how we live. What we believe determines how we live. And so for anyone here today who is, who is thinking, how in the world does doctrine apply to me? It sounds very technical. I'll leave that to the professors and the pastors and the theologians. Like, how, how does doctrine apply to me? This is going to be boring. <laughs> Just thinking here, you're there, and that's, that's kind of what you're thinking. I'm going to say this very much applies to you. It applies to every single one of us. All of us see applicability here because what we believe determines how we live. And sound doctrine, true doctrine, right doctrine, will always lead in the direction of right living. Now that does not mean that if you have all the answers, you're going to live right. It doesn't mean if you, if you know all the answers and you can pass the test that it's going to result in godly living. But sound doctrine will always lead in the direction of godly living. Contrast that with false doctrine, unhealthy doctrine, unsound doctrine. It is always going to lead away from right teaching. It's going to lead to false teaching and not right living. Now, with that being said, every doctrine is important. Every doctrine is is important, but not every doctrine is of equal importance. Not everyone is of equal importance. Let me explain. You may have heard me use this as an illustration before, something called a theological triage. If you haven't heard me say it, you may have heard somebody else say it. It's not unique to me. Triage being an emergency room tool, a word, or a, a battlefield tool that is used to assess the needs of who needs to be treated first. So somebody comes in and they have a gunshot to the chest, and you have somebody else with a gunshot to the leg. Who's getting treated first? Gunshot to the chest. You walk into a packed ER. We've all done that at time, from time to time, right? You walk in and think, we're going to be here until 3 a.m. <laughs> like, we're never going to leave. Yes, you will. The place can be packed. If you complain of chest pains, guess where you're going? To the front of the line. You're jumping ahead of everybody. Now, you want to be honest with that because they're going to put you through a lot of tests. <laughs> but if you complain of chest pains, you're going to the front of the line. Why? Because it's a matter of first importance. It doesn't mean that, that uh, uh, the flu or any other thing that somebody's waiting in the ER for is not important. Anything we're in the ER, we think our situation is important. But a heart attack is a matter of first importance. A potential heart attack is a matter of life and death. Same is true when it comes to doctrine. It's all important, but it's not of equal importance. So with the theological triage, what you have is three tiers of evaluation, determining, kind of ranking out, saying what are matters of life and death and what are areas that we can kind of agree to disagree and still fellowship within the same body of believers. Now, we're going to do this kind of quickly, but tier one are matters of life and death. These are essential things here. Deny any of these, and we can't in good conscience consider one another to be brothers and sisters in Christ. 
That, that's how important the, these are. Can't be a member of any healthy local church. And I keep the word there is healthy because you have some unhealthy churches that will not require anything of somebody to be a member. But these are the areas where if we do not agree here, we cannot affirm one another to be a, a believer in, in Christ. And the examples here would be like the Trinity. It's not saying that, that you have to know all the ins and outs of the Trinity. I dare say that the vast majority of us all have questions regarding the Trinity. But it is saying that if we are taught what the Bible says, that, that God has eternally existed as one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that if we then deny that, then we are denying a very first-tier issue, a very tier issue that says this is who God is. Other areas here would be the, the virgin birth, the, the life of Christ, the, the, the sinless life of Christ, his life, death, burial, and resurrection, the atonement, the, the justification that we just looked at on the screen. Being made right before God comes by faith alone. It is not by any of our works. It is justification by faith. I would go on to include, to some degree, the inerrancy of Scripture being a first-tier theological issue. These are all areas of saying non-negotiable. This is where we stand. Now, tier two is not life or death, but they are still very important, and they're important enough for Christians to say, okay, we're going to have a hard time worshiping together if we disagree here. Not saying that we can't worship together if we disagree here, but it's going to make it a, a lot harder. Why? Because these are still important doctrines. And these are doctrines that have a right answer and a wrong answer. And you've got individuals on both sides saying, we believe that our understanding is right, and this is how the church should practice these particular doctrines. For example, you'd have the ordinance of baptism would fall in here. You're going to have some who are going to say that it has to be practiced in, by, by children being by sprinkled, and it's going to be called what we call pedo-baptism. You're going to have others that are going to say it has to be where we would stand. Believer's baptism is by immersion as somebody comes to faith in Christ. We, we firmly stand in, in the, that area, and so this is the way we're going to practice you have other kind of beliefs that would fall into maybe pertaining to the use and the belief of various spiritual gifts. You know, how they're used, how they're practiced, or maybe it's how we believe that the church should be governed. All of these type of matters are matters of second-tier issues where we can say that person is a brother or sister in Christ. We, we are united together on those first-tier issues. We are together for the gospel. But here on these issues, there's enough difference where it may, not necessarily will, but may make it hard for us to worship together in the, the same church. This is the kind of divisions that divide and why we have different denominations and different churches of the like. And then there's tier three. Tier three consists of important doctrines that we should, and I say should because there are some Christians who have a lot of trouble with this, we should be able to agree to disagree in these areas and still call one another brothers and sisters in Christ and be able to fellowship together within the same church with no problem. These areas include areas like end times or the age of the earth. All of those still being important doctrines, but we can have strong opinions on these doctrines and still be able to fellowship in the same church as long as we're, we're believing that, that you know, Christ will return. That, that's a matter of first importance. We, we need to make sure that we believe that Christ will return. And that we're believing that God created everything that is in existence out of nothing. 
including a literal Adam and Eve. There's room within there to, to have some disagreement and to do so amicably and yet strongly and still fellowship together. Now, what Paul is instructing Timothy to deal with in Ephesus are matters of first-tier importance. We're not exactly sure of the specifics of all the false teaching that was taking place, but it is clearly gospel-related, and it clearly has something to do with a misuse and a misunderstanding of the law, meaning salvation is at stake here. Salvation is on the line. You get this wrong, and you don't just have Baptist churches and Presbyterian churches and Methodist churches and non-denominational churches popping up all over Ephesus. No, get this wrong, and you lose the gospel altogether. Thus Paul's instruction, defend the gospel at all costs. And to help us do this, historically, what churches have created and adopted and held to are documents known as statements of faith. A statement of faith being a fairly concise summary statement of primarily first-tier and some second-tier doctrines stating what the church believes the Bible says about these particular things. So this is what we believe. So it's the church saying, okay, here's what we believe, here's where we stand, and here is what we are going to teach. So again, historically, if you were coming to look to join any particular church, you would have to affirm what the church believes before joining the church. I say historically because, again, that's not always the case today. But if you ever go and you visit a church, you move away and you're looking to join another church, and that church does not have a statement of faith, run. Do not join a church that does not have a statement of faith. You're thinking, what do they believe? How do we know where, where they stand? Now, we're going to be talking more about our statement of faith in coming weeks. But now, number two, a healthy church understands the importance of correcting false teaching. Look again at verse three with me as Paul tells Timothy to charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Paul's telling Timothy to make sure whoever is teaching and whatever is being taught, it better line up with sound doctrine. In other words, it better line up with the statement of faith of the church. Now, the sound doctrine here, the statement of faith of the church, being what Paul taught when he was there for those three years, is being everything that Paul taught. Nothing can vary from what Paul taught. Now, what gives Paul that type of authority? Why is it can, nothing can vary from him? Because we look at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. The why here is because Paul is an apostle of Jesus. An apostle being one who is sent out on behalf of another. Paul being sent out on behalf of Jesus, he's under the authority of God. So his teaching, which would include this letter, all of this is if God himself were present and speaking. That's authority. The authority Paul has been given, his teaching is God's teaching. And the instruction is, can't vary from it. Can't vary. And that applies then, and it applies now. Can't vary from it. Meaning anything we believe or teach must be consistent with what Paul taught and what, what the rest of the Bible teaches. And when it's not... It has to be corrected. It has to be corrected. Can't be passive here. Now, we don't want to hurt 
anyone's feelings is kind of the common excuse. I don't want to hurt somebody's feelings. I don't want to intrude. I don't want to... Can't be passive here. At the same time, when we're doing this, it has to be corrected with the right motives, with the right kind of tone. You're not going to come at this with arrogance. You're not going to come at this with pride. You're not doing this as, hey, I know more than you do. Let me correct you on this. That's not the motive here. Look at verse 5. Verse 5 tells us the aim of our charge is love. Love that, that is, issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Notice how Paul says the aim of our charge is love. Correcting false teaching is always an act of love. Always. Has to be handled that way. Has to be handled carefully yet directly. An act of love towards the false teacher and to the one who is receiving the false teaching. We don't want anyone to be deceived. We want everyone to know the truth. Especially when we're talking about matters of first tier importance. We want no one being deceived because it's life or death on the line. Now number three, a healthy church understands the necessity of entrusting and equipping doctrinally sound teachers. Look at verses six and seven. Certain persons by swerving from these, swerving from what? What are are these? Sound doctrine. Certain persons by swerving from sound doctrine have wandered away into vain discussion desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now, that's a scary statement. In fact, that's a horrifying statement. Look what it says here in the second part, there in verse 7, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding what they are saying. Again, that's a horrifying statement. People are, are wanting to be teachers but they do not know what they are teaching. You can't get much more dangerous than that. To have someone come and to teach and not know the meaning behind what they are teaching, which is why not everyone who wants to teach should ever be allowed to teach. It's not just, hey, who wants to teach? Oh, I do. Okay, now you're in charge of of teaching X, Y, and Z. That's not the way it should work. I, I had a guy after, it was a previous church, but a guy came up right after the service. First time I'd ever laid eyes on him. He comes up after the service and basically he says, hey, I'd like to preach sometime real soon. And I'm like, did I just hear him right? <laughs> like he just, I'm like, and part of me, I'm like, should I be offended by this? <laughs> like he is just coming and he's asking for the pulpit, wanting to preach. I'm like, what, do you want me to line up like part two right now? Like, do you want to line up next week? I mean, all these things are running through my head. And, and yes, we want people to, to teach and desire to teach. But that desire has to be backed up by ability. And it has to be backed up by qualification. This is not just, hey, whoever wants to, let's go, let's do this. We we have to have the time and the proper channels to determine, can can they teach? Are they qualified to teach? And so you got things like small groups and discipleship classes and meeting one-on-one and and getting to know one another over an extended period of time and discipleship. All these things, they help us get to know one another, get to know what someone believes, and if they have the ability to communicate those beliefs. Because you also are going to have times where people are are really knowledgeable. They know their stuff. But they cannot communicate that in a manner that is healthy for a a church to be able to grow. 
Or maybe you have somebody who knows a lot of information, but they're going to come at it from a, a very domineering and harsh kind of way. And that's not going to uplift and build up. You, you have to be tender in your approach and realize that not everybody's going to be where you're at and to slowly and tenderly bring people along. Not to mention, we have to be able to have time to evaluate character. All of those things you have to be careful of. Now, if you're interested in, in growing in your faith and knowing knowledge of God's Word, I pray that we all are. You know, whether it's to teach within a church setting or in your own home, which is the heart of the Great Commission, and we want to be making disciples not only in our homes, but in the world around us. We, you know, we want to be doing this. I, I'd like to invite you to be a part, sign up for one of our upcoming discipleship classes. You can hopefully you've received an email regarding those or seen them on Facebook. If not, you know, I'll be happy to answer any questions or provide any information that you have. So we can be able to, to do this, come alongside one another and build one another and talk through these uh, various different doctrines and these beliefs in a healthy way where, hey, I don't know the answer. Great, let's, let's work through this together. I might not know the answer. Most of my commentaries have been purchased because somebody's asked me a good question that I didn't know the answer to, and I've had to go spend a, a large amount of time reading in order to learn. That's part of the church, helping one another grow in these areas, building one another up and creating teachers within our body um, as well. Not necessarily just formally, but just when we're around the dinner table and other areas teaching and encouraging one another in Christ. I can't think of any more important responsibility of teaching than parents discipling their children. That's an area of first importance. So we want to be qualified for that. Now, number four, a healthy church understands sound doctrine accords with the gospel. Look at verse eight with me. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. And again, what Paul is talking about here is a matter of first-tier importance. He's talking about life and death. Everything that we've looked at to this point is he's focusing on first-tier issues, life and death issues. And what Paul is reminding Timothy and us is that there is a right way and a wrong way to understand and to use the law. You, you, you use it rightly and, and grow in your understanding of, of you grow in your understanding of grace. Use it rightly and you, you grow in your understanding of, of the gospel. Use it rightly and you grow in your understanding of godliness. But you use it wrongly, that being the law, and you move away from sound doctrine and into false teaching. And so there's a right way and a wrong way. And again, that's what's happening here in Ephesus. It's moving away from sound doctrine. False teaching is, is taking over. And that's also what's happening today. We see it all around us in churches all over the world. People understanding the law wrongly and then teaching it and applying it wrongly. Which means in the process, the gospel is being lost or undermined. And whether it's then or now, we see two big ways that people misuse the law. The first we see when we look at verse 4 where Paul talks about myths and genealogies being taught by false teachers. What he's talking about is how false teachers were, were taking stuff from outside of the Bible. Stuff outside of other writings and other stories and family heritages and, and adding all those things to God's Word. So teaching rules and regulations that are not found in God's Word and saying that they must be followed in order to be right with God. We'd call this extra-biblical teaching. Now, 
I've told you before, when I was growing up, I grew up, as you can tell by my accent, in the, the pretty deep south. I grew up down in the south, and a big part of the teaching that took place, whether uh, explicitly or implicitly, was hearing the words like, don't smoke, drink, or chew, and don't date girls who do. It was kind of an add-on to, to the gospel there. Or, like, you cannot, a Christian cannot watch R-rated movies. Must, except for the Passion of the Christ, that was okay. Must attend like, X number of services per week. So if you had service on Sunday morning, you better be there. Sunday night, you're even better. You come on Wednesday night, whoo, you're rocking it. You come to Tuesday night visitation. Anybody even know what Tuesday night visitation is? Like, you know, like very few hands. That's, I actually love that. Tuesday night visitation was when like, you would gather together as the church to go awkwardly knock on everybody's doors uh, in the area that had visited your church on Sunday and you show up at dinner time while they got food and spaghetti in their mouth and you're like, hey, can we come in and talk with you? And like Awkward, right? I'm not saying there's not a time and place to go knock on somebody's door, but that way wasn't it. But you do all of these things, the understanding was you'll be right with God. You'll earn God's favor. Now, that, that last line wasn't like directly ever said, like you will earn God's favor if you do this, but that's kind of what was being implied. That's what we were taking away from it. Like we needed to do these things. And you may be wrestling with similar beliefs running through your head, things that you've grown up with, things that you're wrestling with. All of that is, is a false gospel. But that's not all. The, the, the second way people then and now abuse the law is kind of even worse than that. It's the belief that obeying the law saves. Teaching that if you obey the law, it will help you earn God's favor. And we're all prone to think this way. We all can find ourselves leaning in this direction, thinking, okay, we, we, we can be good enough if I can... Again, beating up on that guy, whoever that guy is. If I can be better than that guy, if I can obey God's laws, if I can do these things, obey everything God says, then that will earn me favor with God. That's not the gospel. It's not the gospel. It's, it's no different than the way Islam thinks. Do these things and you'll earn favor with Allah. That, that's not the gospel. It's a false gospel. Both of these things are wrong ways of viewing the law. We can continue looking at different ways that are wrong to view the law. But there is a right way to understand the law. And in our remaining time together, that's what we want to focus on. How, how do we understand this first tier issue rightly? Sound doctrine. A correct understanding of the law and the gospel. How do we understand it rightly? Again, a matter of first tier importance. See, what the law is intended to do is to help us recognize the difference between good and evil. Why? So we can avoid evil. What the law is saying, whether it's the Ten Commandments being listed out or any other number, other parts of the law, is saying, okay, here's what godliness looks like. Here's how you're supposed to live. And, and this is what sin is. Do this, follow the law, do this so you don't sin. Avoid Sinning. Essentially, that's the purpose of any law, right? To restrain us, to keep us from breaking the law. You take speed limit signs, for example. Are they a suggestion or are they a law? Everybody's like, well, <laughs> it depends on where I'm going, right? Well, if we're honest, they're a law. There may be a law that we think can be adjusted here or there and we may not like. But they are a law. 
a law that exists to restrain drivers from driving too fast and harming themselves and harming others, right? That's why the law exists. So in this sense, a law is written to who? Lawbreakers. It's written to us. It's written to lawbreakers. It's written for people who are prone to speed. Guilty. It's it's written for people who are prone to sin. Guilty. The law is written as a restraint. This is why Paul said in verse 9 that the law is not laid down for the just, for those who are righteous, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners. And then Paul points out specific ways, specific sins throughout verses 9 and 10, ways that all of us are prone to break the law. Whether it's from lying or profanity or sexual immorality, the, the list goes on. So what the law is intended to do is to help us identify these sins and then keep us from committing those sins. It's a tool of restraint, like a speed limit sign is intended to be a tool of restraint. That's a good thing. But this type of restraint is only temporary. Why? Why? Because a sinner is going to sin. Just like a speeder is going to speed. It's going to happen. Now you may not speed for a season. Maybe you've made a vow that I'm going to stop speeding. After that that last traffic ticket (laughs) and the amount of money that it costs, you're like, that's it. I'm done. I'm not speeding anymore. But then you get the kids in the car, the family in the car, everybody's buckled up in the minivan, the SUV, the car, whatever you got. You're all set and you're driving down the road. You're obeying the speed limit and then your song comes on. <laughs> your, your song comes on and then all of a sudden your, your foot begins to get a little heavy. And now you look down and you're coming down the mountain, just gone past Percival. You're flying down 90 to nothing, just jamming away. And you're breaking the law with all the kids in the back. And you don't even realize that you're breaking the law. (laughs) The restraint didn't hold, did it? The truth was revealed. You're a speeder. You're a lawbreaker. We can put restraints in our life all the time and say, okay, I'm not going to break this law. I'm not going to do it. Eventually, we're going to break the law of God. It can only restrain us for so long because we're sinners. Now, the second purpose of the law is to make it evident that we have disobeyed God's law, to leave no question that we are guilty of breaking God's law. And this is worse than going over the speed limit. I think that's needless to say. This is disobeying the one true and holy God, the righteous judge over all of sin. Meaning the law tells us we are lawbreakers standing condemned before God because we have broken his law. The law tells us that we are guilty and we cannot pay the fine. Nothing. We can do nothing to make ourselves right before God. We're standing before the judge of all creation and you have no way to pay the penalty for your sin. This is what the law is telling us. And you know what? This is a good thing. This is a good thing. And here's why. Because when we recognize that we're lawbreakers, we feel that weight of condemnation being pressed down upon us like there's nothing I can do. And then we're presented with the glorious truths of the gospel. Here's what happens we see that Christ, the righteous one, 
He kept the law perfectly. He's righteous and we're not. We begin to see the distinction. He, he's completely righteous and I'm completely sinful. And our cry in response is, I need Jesus. I need him. I need him. Understanding I cannot come to God without him. Cannot. There's nothing I can do. Never can be good enough. Not going to be able to do like 99.9% enough. Can't do anything enough. We cannot pay our penalty. But he did. He did. Church, that's the gospel. That's the gospel. Our sin being exchanged for the righteousness of Christ. See, the law does not save us. It condemns us. And again, that's a good thing because it points us to Jesus. It points us to Jesus. And he saves us when we come to him by faith. We come to him by faith. Not works. Not, hey, look how good I was today, God. Look at all the things that I have done for you. No, 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 no. We come to him saying, I am here standing in the righteousness of Christ alone. By faith, I put all my trust in Christ. He is my only hope in life and in death. That's it. And then thirdly, the law shows us how we are to live once we're saved. This is where God's law instructs us. Sound doctrine shows us how we are to think and then subsequently how we are to live. And because we who are saved are indwelled with the Holy Spirit, not, not partially, not getting a little bit now and a little bit later, but fully dwelt with the Holy Spirit, are now a new creation in Christ, we have the desire, if we are in Christ, we have the desire and the power to obey God's word. That's a good thing. So somebody comes and says, oh, I don't desire that and I, I don't have a desire to obey. Well, then you're, you're telling me that you don't have the spirit and you very well are, are saying that you're, you're not a believer. Because a believer has been given the Holy Spirit, has the power and the desire to obey what God's word says. And it's the spirit that now leads us to walk in righteousness, to live rightly, to obey God's law. Cannot do this on ourselves. This is totally a work of God's grace. And when we fail, and we will, we will have seasons where we, we fail, where we break the law. And when that happens, what do we do? Do we beat ourselves up and say, man, I messed up again. And again? Do we just keep beating? No, we don't. What do we do? We repent. We repent. We keep resting in Christ we keep resting in Christ and keep pursuing obedience and holiness in our lives. We rest in knowing we are no longer condemned by the law, but justified by the gospel. We are justified by the shed blood of Christ. That's sound doctrine. See, if we lose the gospel, we lose everything. Lose the gospel and we lose everything. That's why for a church to remain healthy, it must hold fast to teaching sound doctrine. It has to hold fast to the gospel. Because just like with the church in Ephesus, it does not take long for any church for, for false teaching to enter in. 
It can happen in a blink of an eye. Fierce wolves will attempt to come in among us. It will happen. We are naive to think otherwise. And they will not be wearing wolves' masks when they come. They will not be. People within the church will inevitably speak twisted things. That doesn't mean they're going to do so on purpose. It may be out of complete naivety and, and a complete genuineness of heart. They're just trying to communicate something, but they don't really know the truth. But they're going to make confident assertions that can very well lead away fellow disciples within the church. That's why Paul's charge to Timothy, and thus the charge to us, is to never stop teaching and defending the gospel. To hold firmly to sound doctrine. To guard the teaching of the church and to do so in love. That's essential, to do so in love. Love for the church and love for the world. We've got to have thick skins and tender hearts to do that. We have to, 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 to be able to, to love because we don't want anyone to be deceived. This is a matter of life and death. We don't want to get caught arguing over third-tier issues. Again, not to say that they're not important. But where first-tier issues stand, that's where we will draw like the mountain upon which, the hill upon which we'll die. And we're going to defend those at all costs, and we're going to do so in love. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, we thank you for the gift of sound doctrine. For revealing truths about yourself and the gospel and how we are to live. Lord, doing so is, is a clear demonstration of your love. And a reminder that, that you haven't left us to figure this world out on our own. Like you've given us a blueprint. Your word truly is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. So Lord, have us be a people who are committed to believing, teaching, and obeying your word. To following your blueprints. Even when they run counter to the culture we are living in. Lord, we ask that you use your word to bring life today. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and continue in worship.